Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 28th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Just 30% of us want to drop our position as a neutral country in this world. This is according to a Red Sea poll that was published in the Sunday Business Post. 57% of people surveyed said we should remain neutral and 14% said they don't know. But is Ireland actually a neutral country? There is plenty of reason to argue otherwise, and particularly so in recent days. This week, people before profit are to use private members' time to call for a referendum which would enshrine neutrality in the Constitution, with Paul Murphy telling uh, the doll last week that the Taoiseach said neutrality is a policy issue that can change at any time. The Taunishta said we need to think about greater involvement in European defence. The Minister for European Affairs said three days ago that there's good chance will be involved in the rapid reaction force and raise the need for a debate about the triple lock. And in any debate that takes place in the future uh, in relation to our neutrality, if such a debate is to begin, of course the people will be consulted in relation to us. Uh, But uh, Deputy Murphy, I put it to you again, uh, the very policies that we are implementing to make a difference to those who are in the greatest need at the moment the very aspects of European Union cooperation that we are using are ones that you have been against for your entire career. So, Deputy, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. The Deputy cannot come into this House and attempt to lecture us about us not being clear about where we stand when you have been against the very elements of European Union foreign policy that are now being used to support those who are most in need. It's Pascal Donoghue responding uh, to Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD, who's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Paul. Thanks for joining us on the programme, as always. Do you believe that this is a new country? Um, no, uh, to be honest. Mm. I think that's uh, the neutrality which exists in kind of theory and occasional political statements by the government has been successively uh, eroded and the political establishment see it as a restriction on their ability to do what they want. And so what, what has been largely happening up until now has been kind of the quiet erosion of neutrality the most egregious example of which is the use of Shannon Airport to transport two and a half million US troops to the Middle East.
where you know they're very clearly engaged in armed conflict. So we're assisting uh, the U.S. in 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 that conflict. And mm. um, also the participation in the battle groups, the participation in, in PESCO, which is a, a step of sorts towards mm. uh, full European militarization. So this has been happening kind of bit by bit. But I, I think what is happening in the last couple of weeks is that the Irish political establishment has decided that they're going to very cynically use the horrific, you know, completely unacceptable invasion by Putin of Ukraine to now try and shift public opinion, mm. um, but also not bother too much with public opinion in the sense they want to they want to shift away from a policy of military neutrality fully. They want to completely abandon it to free their hands to participate in further European militarization like this EU rapid reaction force and to align even closer um, with with NATO, which is the US-led uh, military alliance. Well, what we've already to contributed to the military effort, haven't we? Uh, we've uh, made uh, a significant contribution uh, in terms of this uh, country's abil- ability uh, to the military aid that has gone to Ukraine. We're told that that will not actually involve weaponry and so forth, but sending soldiers some uh, helmets to protect themselves on the front line would seem to me to be part of a, a military effort, and indeed sending blood to the front line would seem to me to be part of a, a military effort. Yes, that's, that's the truth. They, they, they have crossed another line again in terms of participating. For the first time, there is an EU military aid uh, taking place. And the Irish government has this very Jesuitical distinction saying that, oh, no, we're not providing the tanks, we're providing the fuel for the tanks. But the total package of what's being provided is exactly the same as if Ireland didn't say that. So it's, 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 a, it's a really nonsensical distinction mm. that is being made. And then that, again, is another significant step. There's the participation in, in Partnership for Peace, which is a, a NATO project with allies, which, for example, and this is instructive, and before Fianna Fáil came to power, I think it was in the 90s, they promised that if Ireland would join Partnership for Peace, very misnamed, that there would have, that would have to require a referendum. But then no such referendum was given, and that government signed Ireland up um, for Partnership for Peace. Mm. And again, if, if you listen to the answers given by Pascal Donoghue to me last week, he was you know, very definite to avoid giving a commitment to say, yes, we will actually consult the people in a referendum before we would abandon the triple lock or before we would participate in the European reaction mm. force. And that's because they know that there still is large public support for neutrality um, and they want to avoid that debate and we're precisely trying to yeah. force them to have the debate by saying, OK, well, let's, let's have a referendum on it, it. It's, you're so keen on a debate. Yeah. It's nuanced, uh, I think. Uh, I'm not sure how clear-cut it is and maybe there is an argument now under the circumstances to participate in this war against Russia. Yeah, I think we have to look. What, what's the best thing that Ireland can do to be a force for peace, a force against imperialism on the world scale. Um, Ireland is never going to have, just by virtue of the size of our country, you know, a very substantial military without, unless you want to get rid of our entire health service, get rid of any provision of housing, etc., etc. Our best, you know, capacity to have an impact on the world scale is by being consistent against all imperialism. So speaking out very, very clearly against the, you know, horrendous, bloody criminal invasion by Putin 
of Ukraine. Okay, but before he invaded Ukraine, he was talking about letting off bombs, very big weapons off for the southwest coast of uh, this country. And you could argue that the quid pro quo for allowing the Americans to use Shannon is uh, that uh, we'll enjoy American protection if there is a threat from Russia or elsewhere or protection from the UK. I, I joined in the condemnation of the Russian military exercises off the coast in the, the EEZ zone of, of Ireland. But I also raised the question, is that is it not very gross hypocrisy that we raise a fury about that correctly, but then literally open the doors for our airports to be used for the transport of military and NATO military exercises, US and British, happen very regularly in the same sort of zone as the Russian military exercises were. And we hear nothing about that. Um, So again, what we would have been in the best position to oppose the Russian military exercises if we had a consistent position and said, well, we're also opposed to NATO military exercises taking place within our our waters. And we think that's the position. You know, it's the the old James Connolly position of neither King nor Kaiser take a principled opposition to all imperialism, um, which I think that's the content by which ordinary people mean by the the, the notion of of neutrality. Okay, government investment in the Defence Forces is to double, uh, to two billion. That's going to have the support of uh, the public if uh, the poll in the Business Post yesterday is anything to go by with 59%. Uh, 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 agreeing that that should be done Uh, and indeed 46% of the people surveyed in that poll saying uh, that they would support a referendum on Irish troops serving in the European army I mean we would support a referendum too um, but in that referendum we're definitely voting no um, and I'm reasonably confident that we'd be able to win a majority in in the public uh, to that and I, I would I mean make the point about the, the question that the Business Post asked about the defence budget. It's quite a leading question. They didn't just ask, would you support in, uh, increasing it? They included the context of, which is currently the lowest in the EU at 0.2% of GDP. Mm. You could include a very different context, which is that you know doing this massive increase in military budget means not building 2,000 homes a year. Mm. That's, that's the choices, you know? So if I think if we actually had a public debate about that and discussed you know, the, the choices that we have here, again, I feel confident that people would say, no, it actually doesn't make sense Okay. some sort of outsized military. Okay, it makes sense to pay our soldiers. But there was, a, there, there was another question about joining NATO, and I don't think you could make the same claim about it being a leading question. It was a simple yes or no, join NATO or not. Uh, the majority, 48%, said yes. 38% said no. But again, the question was, Ireland should join NATO to boost its security. The alternative framing is Ireland should join NATO to send working class young people from yeah. Ireland to go and die in the Middle East in wars for oil and profit. But that's always the way, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, the boys who are, are uh, dying in uh, the Ukraine now uh, are, are mm-hmm. most likely young boys. Uh, we see pop bands on television in army uniforms. Uh, and it's not just Ukrainians. I'm sure uh, the Russian army... Uh, is made up of predominantly young boys uh, who are out there fighting and dying for their country or whatever way it's put. Uh, But that's always the way of war. And if some boys have to die for the sake of war, uh, why should it be somebody else's boys, I suppose, is the question. Well, we think we need to build work for society without war. I mean, Connolly spoke about war being a relic of this barbaric society we have, a barbaric ruling class with barbaric Mm. ideas and the need to overthrow them. Um, And that's you know, if you had a left government in Ireland, that's what you'd be fighting for, is for, you know, to 
take on the armaments industry, which profits from war. I mean, you look at the share prices of these companies that are massively exploding. You look at all the war profiteering which is taking place. Um, I mean, the, the only positive thing in the currently very bleak picture is the fact that despite all the repression and everything else in Russia, you quite a substantial anti-war movement that certainly the young people in Russia who aren't getting their news from the official sources aren't buying into the propaganda and are protesting despite all the repression and so on. And, and we think we should take inspiration from that and have an anti-war movement also in the West and mm. calling for the troops to be out of uh, Ukraine, but also saying similarly that the US-backed Saudi war on mm. Yemen responsible mm. for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people mm should also be ended, and to try and create a society which doesn't um, rely on this horrendous war, of which ordinary people are the ones who pay the price for it. Mm. Uh, would it make any difference? Uh, I mean, there was a lot of uh, talk about Yemen in the Daw last week. Don't think uh, anybody noticed, really. Uh, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, anti-war movements around the world calling for an end uh, to what's happening in Ukraine. Don't think it's making a bit of difference. Uh, and if that is right, if saying the right thing and asking for an end to war and to bring about a, a peace movement and a peaceful world is the right thing to do. What do you do when it doesn't work, when someone like Putin invades Ukraine? Well, you, you have to oppose that. And, like, I, I stand with the people of Ukraine in resisting the invasion. And then you have both military opposition to the invasion, mm. but also you actually have... Well, should, you know, the Ukrainian boys shoot, should the Ukrainian boys shoot the Russian boys? I mean, I, I am for the repulsion of the Russians, do you know what I mean? I'm for the defeat know, of the Russians in, in, in Ukraine, but absolutely, we need to find a way. But what do you do, walk up the street with carnations, or how no, do you no. ask Russians to leave? No, I, I, think, I think the truth is the Ukrainians have the absolute right to armed self-defence. I mean, it's a, an imperialist invasion, there's no question about that. Hmm. Um, but what's the best thing that we can do? I mean, you, you made the point that, look, all this anti-war stuff here never really hmm. works. Um, and that isn't... I mean, sometimes that's the case. Maybe U.S. war in Iraq. I'm not, I'm not sure I said that, but when you're up against somebody like Putin, I think you know you might as well be talking to the wind. Uh, so, look at, I mean, so do you let the Ukrainian boys die, or do you send in real support, which is the tanks, the bombs, the guns, and the planes, and the boys? Um, I think what you say is support for the Ukrainian people and support for the anti-war movement in Russia, and like. Horrific dictators can be overthrown. Uh, Mubarak in Egypt, throughout the whole then Arab Spring in Tunisia, etc., you have revolutions that overthrow. The First World War came to an end because there was a revolution in Russia which overthrew, overthrew the Tsar and adopted a different uh, policy. That, mm. That's what happened. Obviously, that took many, many years for that to happen. The Vietnam War came to an end because the U.S. was forced to, forced, fought to a standstill by the North Vietnamese um, and uh, an anti-war movement at home which held uh, back and restricted and created a real political problem for the U.S. Uh, establishment. Um, but I think a part of that is also for us who are in the West to say no to also the U.S. and NATO imperialist ambitions, which includes expanding into Eastern Europe. It includes having missiles in four different countries surrounding Russia, battle groups and so on. Also opposition to those because they don't assist in trying to build a, a world of, of peace um, and solidarity. Okay. You'll uh, bring this uh, to the floor of uh, the doll again uh, this week, and I'm sure we'll hear more uh, later in the week. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning, though. That's uh, Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. LMFM. 
Hundreds of people admitted to hospital over the weekend with COVID-19. 700 between Friday and uh, Sunday morning, apparently. And uh, the HSE is very concerned about uh, the pressure that's putting on services. Dr. Augustine Pereira, who is uh, the Director of Public Health with the HSE Northeast, joins us once again. And a very good morning to you, Doctor, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What can you tell us uh, about the situation in hospitals this morning? Uh, well, Michael, as you outlined, the impact on hospital is significant because of um, uh, quite a lot of cases um, uh, being admitted into hospitals. And there's, um, uh, as a consequence, there's widespread cancellation of elective surgeries that are needed to cope with the impact on hospitals. Uh, the impact on hospitals is because of a few reasons. Firstly, there are staff absences up to about 5,000 um, healthcare workers are now positive or isolating uh, due to COVID. We also have a very high number of patients with COVID, uh, either COVID um, and they're sick with COVID or they are positive and they are admitted for other conditions. But when they're tested, they're positive for COVID. And when someone is positive for COVID, we need to isolate and uh, put in place all the IPC measures that are needed, which is at a higher level of infection prevention and control, firstly to protect other patients, but also to protect the staff. Uh, all these um, infection prevention and control measures are needed. So it is causing a significant mm. impact on hospitals, uh, as we see now. Okay. Uh, and is it that people have COVID and, generally speaking, they're not severely ill? Well, um, thanks to the high rates of vaccination, we are seeing the protective effect of vaccines and um that's the that's the difference now with these waves. We we certainly have a high degree of um, protection. For instance, in the northeast, um, just earlier we were talking about the uh, rate of vaccination uptake up in the over eighteen population. Vaccination coverage is about ninety five percentage. And if you look at the above forties, which is probably the age group who are more likely to get admitted into hospitals. The vaccination coverage approaches 98, 99%. In fact, about 65 is 99% and, and above. Mm. So very high rates of vaccination. But still, it's a small proportion of the unvaccinated. I mean, if you look at that, about 45, as I said, between 1% to 5% are unvaccinated. But if you look at the hospital admissions, close to 35% of those who are admitted into hospitals are unvaccinated. Mm. So that shows that, you know... Uh, for the unvaccinated, you're at much higher risk of having a serious infection and being hospitalized and being in, admitted into ICU. So um, the clear message is vaccines have protected, are continuing to protect people from very serious infections and also, sadly, the deaths, which we are seeing, uh, continuing to see. So if uh, you've not had the booster, please go and have your booster. If, if for instance, you've not had the vaccine, and there are some people... Um, who not had the vaccine just yet, and uh, we would like to see you come forward, even at this stage. I mean, we would welcome you to any of our vaccination centres. Um, uh, looking at our vaccination coverage, as, as I mentioned, we are very mm. pleased with the high uptake. But there are pockets in some LEA areas where vaccination uptakes are lower. Um, that's so. We, I'd like to reach out to anyone 
out there who are in in that category to come forward. Yeah, to come and get their first vaccine or their second vaccine, or there's people who have been vaccinated and felt that all of this was over and didn't go for a booster vaccine. Uh, and maybe That's they should right. be thinking about that or having their children vaccinated. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of understandable. I mean, there's uh, so much guidance out there. If you had COVID, not to have your next vaccine for three months, and uh, pe- people have been, I mean, some people have been waiting because they had, had COVID um, So uh, in the last three months. And if you've completed the three months, you can come forward and get your booster or your other dose. You know? so, uh, so it's important to look into the guidance and uh, depending on your situation, come forward and get the vaccine. Yeah, it seems uh, as though everybody or nearly everybody is catching COVID at this stage. Is it, it, Has it got to a stage where it's impossible not to get it? Uh, it? It is so widespread. You're right. I mean, there's extraordinary high levels of community transmission. And in the past, if I was speaking to you a year ago, we would be uh, taking a very different approach uh, as well. But thanks to the protection of the vaccines, that you know that decoupling effect that we've spoken about some time back uh, is still uh, seen. So essentially, although we're seeing very high levels of community transmission, uh, we are not seeing that uh, translate into very high numbers of hospital admissions and very high, I mean, proportionately high numbers of hospital admissions and uh, ICU admissions. We're still seeing. Um, uh, an increase in hospital admissions lately, but that's because of significant levels of community transmission. Mm, okay, and it's causing problems in the hospital because there are people, as you said, in hospital for other reasons and they're testing positive for COVID. Uh, I don't think anybody wants a, a dose of COVID. It doesn't seem to be very pleasant, even in the mildest of circumstances. Uh, what should we, should we be doing to stop our, ourselves from catching the virus? Well, firstly, be aware of um, the symptoms. I mean, now the symptoms are slightly different, for instance, as well. Uh, a large number of people are reporting sinus infections and signs, I mean, and also I mean, the signs of severe viral infection like body ache, fatigue, exhaustion. Um, and some people are having fever and chills. And, um, uh, un- well, the, if you're unvaccinated, you're more likely to have more serious infection. But what we're seeing is more of upper respiratory infections. Um, and um, if you do develop symptoms, you have to self-isolate and uh, until you're 48 hours symptom-free. And certain uh, subgroups, we do recommend getting a PCR test, like if you're unvaccinated or unboosted and over 55 years, or if you have a high medical, uh, high-risk medical condition. Mm. The reason being, if you are in a high-risk medical condition, that you may be eligible for some treatments that might actually reduce the, the severeness of the infection. So if you are immunocompromised or in a high-risk medical condition, get a PCR test and uh, find out if you have COVID uh, uh, and liaise with your GP. If you have symptoms and you're testing negative, do you need to isolate? If you have symptoms, you have to isolate until you're 48 hours symptom-free. That is important, whether you test or not. And you test your negative or you do not test, you have to isolate until you're 48 symptom-free mm. for 48 hours. Okay. And that's the current guidance now. And that is essentially to reduce uh, contagion in the uh, in the community. Mm. We're seeing such widespread transmission. And I, another thing I would say is to be aware of your own risk. When I say your own risk, include your own risk, but your own family, your own workplace. Your, uh, if there are vulnerable people, 
in your work or you in at where you in your family or where you live uh it's wise to take additional precautions now such uh, as because we don't have to wear masks for example but should we yeah. wear masks well you don't have to that's true it's not mandated but masks are advised in public transport and in healthcare settings by the government but i would also say if you are going into a crowded indoor space and you are in that category of being vulnerable or at a higher risk or uh, live with someone who's vulnerable or work with someone who's vulnerable or have have a family member this i mean it's the additional precaution that one can take isn't by assessing your own risk so i'd say assess your own risk and when i say your own it's also risk around you and risk to people around you as well mm. and continue to wear mask i mean it's yeah i still continue to wear my mask when i'm in um outdoor in retail or in crowded indoor settings um uh, that's partly to protect myself but also to to send a message to protect everyone else around me okay keep your distance wash your hands cough etiquette all of those things that people have heard over and over the last couple of years true continue to manage risks for yourself and those around you by following all that you're very familiar with hearing over the past 2 years Okay. Well, there's a lot of COVID uh, around uh, and uh, you're appealing to people to do this so that uh, there'll be fewer people in hospital uh, and that will help to take some of uh, the pressure off of the hospital services and people will be able to treat it, be treated not just for COVID, but for other uh, very serious problems that uh, are being uh, cancelled now, as you said at the outset, uh, Dr. Augustine. But thank you indeed. That's right, Michael. And um, also to say, I mean, uh, I just want to put the numbers out there. So I mentioned about some LEAs with low uptake rates. And for instance, uh, if you look at the county of Monaghan, uh, um, 87% are vaccinated, which means 13% of people yet have to come forward to get their vaccine, mm. which is effectively one in eight people. Okay. If you look at a room of 50 people that's six yeah. to eight people in that room it's a lot of people yeah and it's so virulent as you said Dr Augustine Pereira director of public health with the HSE Northeast thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning now we go to Brussels uh, where the minister Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM so for Justice Helen McEntee is on the line good morning minister thank you indeed for taking the time to be with us uh, this morning a number of things to discuss including uh, your trip uh, to Brussels but maybe you tell us about Justice Plan 2022 which you're publishing today it contains 159 actions or uh, to put that uh, another way uh, the way that you hope to introduce reform over the course of uh, the next year. Well, good morning, Michael. And, and as you've just outlined today, I've published the, the Justice Plan for 2022. Uh, as you've just said, it's 159 actions or contained 159 actions with quite a number of sub-actions. And really, this is building on so much of the work that we did last year in the department. So it's about building a, a justice system that works for everyone. And what I mean by that, it's building on reforms that are underway in the department, so reforms in Angarda Sheikhana, reforms in the prison service, reforms across the, the court service. It's about, for me, very importantly, in developing our policy, working with people. So so much of our focus, uh, say, for example, in domestic violence, um, our policy has been developed through working with victims and survivors, working with community and voluntary groups. So a lot of that policy is informed through that collaborative piece. Thirdly, I suppose it's about making sure that we have clear timelines and actions and plans. And it's really important to me that if I set a target and if my department sets targets 
uh, of things that we want to do, that we have a clear timeline, how we're going to achieve it, who's going to achieve it, make sure that we have the funding to do so. And this plan clearly sets it out in that way. So I, I appreciate it's March, but obviously we've been working on a lot of these actions uh, in the first third of this year and or first quarter of this year and we'll be continuing on as, as the year develops. And tell us a little bit more about change that is intended uh, through how uh, the courts hand down sentences. Well, I suppose this is something that's particularly new. Maybe um, a lot of the actions are continuations of last year and, and developments from last year's actions. But in relation to sentencing, this is something that I have been, I suppose, considering for some time. And in particular, when I came back from maternity leave last November, I asked my department to do a piece of work looking at sentencing, in particular in relation to life sentences. So at the moment, if a person is found guilty of murder, they receive a mandatory life sentence. And there are other forms of crimes where people can get life sentences. They can automatically um, engage with the parole board after 12 years. It was seven. We've increased it to 12. Um, but what I would like to do, and we're exploring under this new action plan, is the potential for a judge to have a discretion where there is a particularly heinous crime. So where you have particularly awful cases that a judge may have a discretion to say, I want this person to serve at least 20 years, at least 25 or 30 years before they can engage with the parole board. And this is to acknowledge that there are some types of crimes that, that are that are particularly horrible. And I think we can probably all imagine in our in our head those type of crimes. That discrepancy or that, that discretion doesn't exist at the moment. So while I'm very conscious of my role as Minister for Justice, the separation of powers, this is not interfering in the work of the judiciary. This is allowing them the discretion to decide particular cases uh, a person should then serve a minimum sentence before they're up for parole. It's also a recommendation from the Law Reform Commission so back in 2013. They made a number of recommendations around sentencing so that we should have sentencing guidelines. And we have seen in recent years the Judicial Council is now working through a committee on sentencing guidelines. The second is that we would have a statutory parole board. This was established last year and that's now up and running. And the third piece is that we would review mandatory life sentences. But what I'd like to do is expand that out further so it doesn't just potentially apply to murder, but it would apply to some other cases as well. So really, I I suppose this is about... This is about showing and, and, and being clear that there are particular types of crimes um, that people should be serving longer sentences for or that there should be less interaction with the parole board before a particular period of time. OK. Uh, Minister, I think people will be glad to hear that you're in Brussels and you're no longer self-isolating. Yes. Well, look, uh, unfortunately, I was... Um, Unfortunately, I had COVID again. Um, as people might be aware, I had it last year, so it's very clear. And I think, particularly in the last few weeks and months, it's, it's been very clear to everybody that you, you can actually get it more than once. And unfortunately, I had to isolate last week, but I'm, I'm out of isolation now, and I'm in Brussels, as you mentioned. We have a Justice and Home Affairs committee today. Um, the last time we met as a committee, we agreed the temporary protection mechanism. Uh, and I think most people at this stage will know what that is. It's essentially a European mechanism that we're now applying to Ukrainian citizens or anybody who's fleeing Ukraine seeking protection where they can essentially come to our country to live, to work, to, to put their children in school and to hopefully, uh, hopefully once this war is over, that they can return home. So we're now meeting again to make sure that we can coordinate these efforts. We have 4.7 or sorry, 3.7 million people have already left 
Ukraine, they've travelled to Poland, to Hungary, to Slovakia, to Moldova, to Romania. Um, But we need to make sure that we are all sharing the burden, that we are all supporting these people and that we coordinate that in the best way possible. And that's what we're discussing here today. And about 13,500 in this country or, or thereabouts, Minister, and that number set to grow significantly. Yes, so as of today's Monday, as of Saturday, the figure was over 13,548, I think was the exact number. Um, you have over 7,000 of those have sought accommodation already. So obviously that is the biggest challenge that we're facing right now. Um, the types of accommodation that we're providing is everything from hotel rooms to, to guest accommodation. You have private arrangements that are already in place with people who are staying with family members and friends. But we're looking beyond that now even further. Our, our own uh, government departments are looking at state-owned land. We're looking at private land. We're engaging with religious orders. There's, there's so much that we have to explore and to make sure that we are able to provide accommodation for people as well as the other types of relevant supports. So again, the conversation that I'm having with colleagues today is whether the Commission can provide financial assistance to allow us to be able to provide as much support as possible. I mean, we, we are already providing that support. We are already financing mm-hmm. it. Um, but as those numbers potentially increase, uh, we need to make sure that there is support there. Um, and I mean, the, the figure of 13,500 plus, that is in five and a half weeks um, on a normal year so to speak, um, the international protection system, we would probably see on average about 3,000 people. So the fact that we have over 13,500 people in five and a half weeks, I, I think that just that, that shows the scale of, of what we're trying to deal with um, to date. We have found accommodation for everybody, mm-hmm. but obviously we need to continue to explore all these different avenues and make sure that as people come in, we do have accommodation for them and that we can support them. Do you believe that we have the wherewithal to provide appropriate accommodation for people because with so few refugees at this stage uh, relative to how many might come uh, we're talking about 13,500 people in comparison to what might turn out to be 200,000 people and we're talking about housing 320 people in tents in Gormanston camp it's a bit of a, a disappointment is it not Minister? Well, firstly, I think for people who are arriving here, their their first and foremost priority is safety. Um, and once they get here, they are safe, and we will make sure that they remain safe. I mean, it's not ideal that we would have anybody in tents or accommodation where they don't have their own mm. space, they don't have their own rooms, they don't have access to their own bathrooms, all of these things. But as the numbers increase, we have to explore every option. And we haven't gotten to the stage where Gormanstown is in use or any other types of accommodation where you have, you know, we, we've seen pictures already in Poland where you have hundreds of camp beds essentially in large facilities mm. and people sleeping there. We haven't gotten to that stage yet. I can't tell you that we won't get to that stage. But first and foremost, the priority is to make sure that people are safe, to make sure that people are welcomed, to make sure that they have support Mm. in every way that we can. So, I mean, within a matter of a week, uh, I spoke to some schools where children were already starting in the schools, where people were already, uh, you know, engaging with community. People were helping them with language and interpretation and these other kinds of supports. So it's about the accommodation also, but all these other types of supports that people need. It wouldn't appear to bode well. Anybody that I've met. They, they have been very thankful for the support mm. they've received. But, but but as I say, with so few people, it wouldn't appear to bode well uh, in terms of us having the wherewithal if we are talking about camps, tents, and we are talking about tents for 320 people in Gormanston. And I don't think it'll be lost on people uh, that there'll be refugees coming to this country staying in tents uh, next door to Mosny. Uh, it doesn't look well, does it, Minister? 
Well, again, our priority is to make sure that people are safe. Um, and in five and a half weeks, we have managed to find accommodation for 13,500 people without having to go down that route. We have uh, well over 10,000 people have offered their own homes and to share their homes with people. And we're only starting to go through that process. I, I think people will appreciate the initial focus through the Red Cross uh, appeals mechanism was to um, was to look at where accommodation was empty so that we could put people in immediately. Mm. The minute the state gets involved where there is shared accommodation, there's a duty of care to make sure that the people who come in are, are safe, but also the people who are offering their home are safe. So that process will take a little bit longer. If we're talking about modular bills on state-owned land, that's going to take a little bit of time. If we're talking about larger scale um, buildings as well, separate to, to any type of tents or any type of other mm. uh, settings, that takes a bit of time. So the fact that in the immediate term we've been able to provide housing for 13,500 people without any of those options being fully on the table, you know, we, I, I do believe we will have the wherewithal and the capacity. I mean, you, you only have to think of our colleagues and our friends in Poland where they have received the, the bulk of the 3.7 million people where Moldova as a really small country has received hundreds of thousands of people. Their their infrastructure is not able to deal with the, the number of people that they're receiving. So we have offered to take some people from from uh, from Moldova. So I mean, in the grand scheme of things, while it's obviously a large number for us, other countries are dealing with much bigger, bigger numbers. So, you know, we are always going to play our part. We are always going to offer to help. It might not be ideal. It might not be exactly what we'd like for people, but you know, I have to keep going back to the fact the most important thing here is that people are safe, yeah. that we provide them with safe accommodation Absolutely. and that we yeah. welcome them. Mm. And, and that we do our best by them. Minister, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, there's a, a big job of work ahead in that respect uh, and uh, I think maybe that uh, gives some indication of how big the challenge is. But thank you as I say. That's uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's a Fine Gael TD for Mid East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're in business locally, you may very well be interested in a special event uh, that is being hosted tomorrow morning by Drogheda Chamber of Commerce on life after Brexit. Let's speak to Robert Murray, who's uh, the president of uh, the Chamber of Commerce in uh, Drogheda. And a very good morning to you, Robert, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. I suppose Brexit is already being felt in, in many ways with imports from Britain falling by 13% last year. Good morning, Michael. Thanks very much for the invitation to be on your, on your show this morning. Um, yeah, absolutely. Brexit is, um, is, is, is a, it's, it's not gone away. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, and I think coupled with a few other um, external factors that we're aware of, like COVID and obviously the war in Ukraine, trading is not going to be easy over the next period. So uh, certainly this, this event tomorrow is going to be very helpful to anybody. And it's not just for large exporting businesses. I think there's an interest here for any business. And there's going to be some very good experts on, on the event with us um, like, you know, that will answer questions across any size of business. OK, tell us about who you have speaking uh, tomorrow. This is online, by the way, and free, isn't it? Yeah, it's online, um, and I, I suppose I should just kind of just intro um, there, just by saying that, like you know, the chamber being in business for business, we we do host supportive events like this very regularly. So please keep an eye out on the website for that. Tomorrow's event is um, it's really focused on supply chain management post Brexit. That's really what we're talking about, and customs 
and the issues that are associated with that. Because um, clearly we've got the you know supply chain interruptions and complications um, around that, mm. and we've got um, we've got um, experts with us from Intertrade Ireland. So we've got Deirdre McGuire, who leads the Brexit um, advisory service there, and she'll be talking to us about um, how they can assist cross border SMEs with funding to help navigate through Brexit and, and obviously the other issues around that. We're delighted as well to have our sponsors um, for the event tomorrow, which is the local enterprise office Loud. Um, we've got Peter McGrain, who's a business advisor, so he'll be on hand to talk about support available for businesses in, in the Loud area um, and in the local area um, to future-proof businesses and look at customs mentoring as well. And, and again, we've got um, an expert with us tomorrow. We we're delighted to have um, Martin Agnew, who's the director of Across Borders uh, Consulting, and he is, um, he's just so knowledgeable. And he's going to be focusing on very key points. Uh, one, he's going to be looking at trade visibility. So that's very important for any business looking at importing and, and exporting, just to understand the processes and to be able to get it right. Quality risk management and supply chain optimization. Uh, and obviously looking at the whole cost reduction in general as well. That's what he's going to focus on. Um, but as you said, it's online. It's at half ten tomorrow um, until half past 11. So it's a one-hour, very, very comprehensive event. Mm. Um, and it'll be Q&A. So if anyone wishes to even ask questions in advance, we'd love to invite um, anyone to to contact us today just to so we can we can prep those answers. Okay, I imagine uh, there'll be a lot of questions uh, because there's so much uncertainty, isn't there? Not just uh, because of uh, the war in Ukraine and what impact that will have have on supplies uh, around uh, the world, uh, but there is the Northern Ireland Protocol, which continues uh, to be an issue of contention. And we're going into elections now in the North, and uh, again, uh, that could lead to consequences for Brexit and for trading in this part of the world. Yeah, definitely. And Deirdre, like, you know, uh, particularly from the Intertrade Ireland side of things, she'll be able to um, answer questions, particularly around the protocol um, tomorrow. And, you know, there are, like, you know, I suppose, like, you know, it's, some some trading is simplified with the protocol, but there are definitely um, issues there that you need to be aware of. So we'll be, we'll be touching on all those things tomorrow. OK, and everybody knows everything is getting more expensive and it's more expensive to do business uh, as well. Uh, again, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's the key word. Uh, uncertainty is, 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 the, is the magic word. Um, you know, if, again, if you look, though, as well, if you look at exports, the UK is one, like, you know, one aspect of exporting. And we do export, obviously, to different countries. It's not all, um, it's not all into the UK. We've the US, we've got the other, just the EU states. So I think there's there's certain like you know I think individual businesses just need to look where they're trading and just be a bit more conscious. But I think if we look at what we're going to hit on tomorrow, it's really highlighting the opportunities for businesses in this area to be able to trade properly and to avoid common mistakes. I think like mm-hmm. you know looking at risks around costs and trading that's going to be a key part. Obviously we've got the restrictions and and the limitations in what we can import and export at the minute based on on the on the international um, landscape. And also, um, we, I think businesses need to know where to ask those questions to get the right answers. And this is a, the perfect forum tomorrow. OK, well, it could be an hour well spent online, as you say. If uh, people want to submit questions in advance to contact you in the chamber, is it? Yeah, look, if they want to pop a question, they can send it directly to me, president at drawhadachamber.ie or to irene at drawhadachamber.ie. We'd love to get the questions in and like it will focus the, it will focus the session, but we'll be very, it'll be very comprehensive, great, great presentation set up for the, from the guys. And uh, and we'll answer any questions. Um, uh, and I suppose, yeah, it's just just to encourage that you don't need to be an owner or like you know someone specifically um, exporting. It can be someone who's interested in that whole area. Come in and just have a, have a look. It's free. It's not just for uh, members of the chamber as well. So we'd invite every business 
um, to take part and to, to get involved in this event. OK, very good. That's half ten tomorrow morning. Thank you, as I say, for joining us on the programme today. Robert Murray is uh, the President of uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Drogheda. Uh, thanks uh, to John Navin, who was on the phone to us uh, this morning. John says, I-, I know it's terrible what's happening in Ukraine. Just wondering, though, would there be the same outcry if it was America that was invading Ukraine and they've invaded plenty of countries in their time says John and there doesn't seem to be the same type of outcry uh, there are some hypocrisies I think always surrounding war and foreign policies uh, it uh, would seem John uh, Peter and Dundalk says he'd like to ask a question about hospital car parks and the story today that the HSE got over 5 million euro in car parking charges at public hospitals last year where does that money go is there a breakdown available as to where each hospital spends the money because I'd love to know thanks uh, Peter it goes into general spending as I understand it uh, for the hospitals and uh, means that there's a, a lot of money that is raised for the work that hospitals do through car parking charges and nobody wants to pay for the car parking but how do you fund the hospitals if you take away the charges and uh, that's a, a sort of never-ending circle uh, uh, when it comes uh, to discussing it. Sean is in Drogheda and he says, Michael, I like that Ireland is neutral and I've always supported that stance but I'm dismayed at what is going on in Ukraine and while I certainly don't want another war you do have to question how countries can just stand by and watch this awful atrocity happen so many innocent people being killed including children it's wrong I feel that nothing is being done to help them okay we don't want another war so we just let Putin away with what he's doing question mark to that statement by the way Uh, thanks uh, Sean it's really ridiculous. Nobody wants war, I think. I think nobody. Well, uh, that's wrong, obviously. Putin and others want war, and there's been so many wars over the years in so many places, but uh, generally speaking, the likes of you and me don't want war. Uh, But when you face into it like this, when it seems as though uh, you're talking to a a brick wall, uh, you do have to wonder, do you send other people's boys out to fight that war or do you send our boys out to fight that war? Now, I know I don't want to be sending our boys, uh, but does that mean that others die because we've stood by uh, in uh, the sidelines watching on? I don't know. It's a very, very difficult question and a very difficult conversation. Uh, Anne in Trim wonders what percentage of refugees coming to the country have been vaccinated against COVID-19? It's amazing, she says, where all the housing units are coming from when before Christmas Uh, There was a homeless problem and uh, rents were through the roof. There were no houses, only talk from government, no action. But suddenly, somehow, we're able to find a solution with so many people coming into the country. Well, I think before Christmas, we had 10,000 people, wasn't it, who were homeless? Uh, And we've already had 13,000 people come into the country from Ukraine who've been housed in one way or another. Uh, So I think they're legitimate questions uh, and it doesn't mean that there should be any uh, thing uh, that uh, would be negative about those questions in terms of how we're welcoming Ukrainians here because that's what we should be doing. But if we can do it, well, why haven't we been doing it, I suppose, is the question up to now. Uh, there's a, a lot of questions uh, that have come about uh, as a, a result of uh, the war. Uh, and one of them is if uh, the Russian administration should be replaced, if uh, there should be a new regime installed in Russia. 
Uh, is it any of our business? Well, it seemed to become some of our business over the weekend. Uh, and we'll hear why over the next few minutes. Let's hear a, a little bit from the American president, Joe Biden, and what he had to say in a speech in Poland. Be not afraid. These are the first words at the first public address of the first Polish pope after his election in October 1978. There were the words would come to define Pope John Paul II. Words that would change the world. John Paul brought the message here to Warsaw in his first trip back home as Pope in June of 1979. It was a message about the power, the power of faith, the power of resilience, the power of the people. In the face of a cruel and brutal system of government, it was a message that helped end the Soviet repression in the central land in Eastern Europe 30 years ago. It was a message that will overcome the cruelty and brutality of this unjust war. When Pope John Paul brought that message in 1979, the Soviet Union ruled with an iron fist behind an iron curtain. Then a year later, the Solidarity Movement took hold in Poland. Well, I know he couldn't be here tonight. We're all grateful in America and around the world for Lech Walesa. Indeed, and uh, the American President uh, Joe Biden quoting uh, Pope John Paul uh, and be not uh, afraid. It, it was a theme that ran through a speech on Friday. And history shows this is the task of our time, the task of this generation. Let's remember the hammer blow that brought down the Berlin Wall, the might that lifted the Iron Curtain, were not the words of a single leader. It was the people of Europe who for decades fought to free themselves. Their sheer bravery opened the border between Austria and Hungary for the pan-European picnic. <clears throat> they joined hands for the Baltic Way. They stood for solidarity here in Poland. And together, it was an unmistakable, undeniable force of the people that the Soviet Union could not withstand. And we're seeing it once again today with the brave Ukrainian people showing that their power of many is greater than the will of any one dictator. So in this hour, let the words of Pope John Paul burn as brightly today. Never, ever give up hope. Never doubt. Never tire. Never become discouraged. Be not afraid. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never erase a people's love for liberty. Brutality will never grind down their will to be free. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. For free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principles, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. 
And Joe Biden's speech went down well. And that was the end of uh, the speech. He was to finish off by saying, God bless the troops and God bless America. That's where the scripted speech ended. Uh, But the American president then continued to speak off speech. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. Referring, of course, uh, to Vladimir Putin and... uh, That caused uh, some eyebrows uh, to be raised uh, because if that is the view of the American president, what does he mean by that? Uh, Does the American president mean that Vladimir Putin should be ousted from power? Does that mean that NATO gets involved, that there would be some form of military action to make sure that there is a change in regime? Well, no, apparently not. He didn't mean any of that. He didn't actually mean that there should be a change in regime, according to Joe Biden when he was asked about it yesterday, or indeed according to the Secretary of State and others who have been taking questions about it over the weekend. Uh, But it uh, certainly did raise a few eyebrows, to say the least. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now you heard uh, some of uh, the interesting poll findings uh, from uh, the Sunday Business Post earlier in the programme about neutrality. We may hear uh, some more about uh, those findings in a short while. But let's go to Michael Brennan, who is the political editor with uh, the Sunday Business Post. And the Red Sea poll yesterday would have been of huge concern to the main two political parties in this country. Good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It's incredible to think that between the two of them, they're polling jointly at 25%. Yeah, it, it, the, the, the poll findings here, I suppose, are particularly alarming for, for um, Fine Gael, Michael. They, they've been on the slide in, in the Red Sea polls now since around last summer, and they're down again by a point to 19%. It's it's below that kind of twenty percent threshold that gives some comfort sometimes mm. to parties, and it's a bit like petrol or diesel going above two euro at the pump. That generally kind of uh, uh, figures can cause problems for for the party. Mm. Sorry, not twenty five, thirty five percent between the two because Fine Gael on nineteen, Fianna Fáil on sixteen. They're really really dire figures for the two big parties. Yeah, and, and in a way, this is the way Irish politics has been going for some time. You know, the, the, the two-and-a-half-party system of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and, and Labour is long gone. Um, Sinn Féin are just retaining the, the big support they got in the general election. They've bid further on that. They're, they're unchanged now for several polls and 33%. And the gap then is just is just much wider between them and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And it really shows that you know if this trend continues, we're certainly facing into a very different government at the next election. Okay, and what would it mean if there was to be a, an election tomorrow? Would it mean that both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael would not be in government? That is a possibility. I suppose you, you, you've maybe two, I think, broadly likely outcomes there. One is if you say you want a kind of left-wing alliance for government, you put Sinn Féin and 33% and you have three smaller parties all in 5% Labour, the Social Democrats and Greens. And then you're up to, certainly you would imagine there's a, there's a government majority there if you could get agreement for that kind of coalition. But that's not guaranteed. You know, Labour have a new leader under Ivana Batchik. The Social Democrats have never been in government before. Neither obviously have Sinn Féin. The other big one that's talked about a lot is Sinn Féin supported by Fianna Fáil. And again, that would be historic. 
um, uh, I know that possibly Sinn Féin in government with others supporting it in a kind of conference and supply style arrangement. So there are several permutations, but I think if Sinn Féin retain that level of support, they're in the driving seat to try and form a, a government. Mm, and Fianna Fáil is a junior partner. Yes, and that would be a huge strategic call for Fianna Fáil because, of course, there are many in Fianna Fáil who would love to see Sinn Féin in government to see if they can promise many of the things they've been promising in opposition and they suspect that they won't be able to deliver. But if they go in, obviously they will be very much identified with that government and, uh, and, and maybe blame just as much themselves. Mm, and I guess that's quite often the way that governments are held to account for the state of affairs, if you like, but sometimes that's out of their hands. Yeah, I think it's very telling looking at Fine Gael's figures. Uh, Richard Colwell in Red Sea is making the point that a lot of the support in this poll is, is kind of divided between haves and have-nots. That people who are on lower income are finding it very difficult. A lot of them are going to support Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have maybe voters who are slightly better off, not exactly all in a great situation, but the people who want to change, who feel their lives are... Are, are very tough at the moment, are putting their hope in, in Sinn Féin. OK, bad polls like this uh, tend uh, to instil a sense of panic in politicians. Yeah, it, it can be destabilising. I, I think for Fine Gael at the moment, though, Leo Redker has one comfort, which is there will be a lot of concern in the party, but there's no sign of any any of his ministers gearing up to try and unseat him or anything like that. But... They will be doing some soul searching as to to what they're what they're doing and not doing. That you know they were pre-pandemic you know, during the pandemic they were on thirty percent plus and a much healthier position. But in the last year or so, that's fallen away. Mm. Uh, and of course, uh, Leo Radker is uh, the subject of a, a Garda investigation that could have a, a huge bearing on his future and his party's future. Yeah, I, I checked myself with the Gardaí last week to see what is the status of this investigation because there's been a, an assumption for quite some time now that there will be a, an announcement, there'll be news on what's happening and uh, the answer from the Gardaí press, press office was the investigation was continuing and obviously they're not going to comment any further. So that is a, that's a constant shadow lurking in the background there and there's definitely huge uh, concern in Fine Gael about the length of time it's taking and they, they really want to see it put to bed and, and, uh, and, and come to a conclusion. OK. Uh, and do you think that he, he will become uh, the Taoiseach uh, or uh, uh, is it impossible to say until that guard investigation concludes? I, I think it's it's a, a far be it for me, Michael, to, mm. to try and get inside the mind of the, the Garda investigation team. But there's a general feeling in Leinster House that that uh, that the that, that, that Tarnister will be able to get over this, that the investigation won't result in some kind of very political, difficult situation for him, and that he will take over a schedule as Taoiseach in December. That's the belief. But obviously, as long as you know, that question mark hangs over it. It's still an awkward one. Mm, yeah, well, there's so much uncertainty and so much uncertainty in the world as a, a result of what's happening in the Ukraine uh, at, a, at a minimum. Uh, but there's also then, uh, I suppose, uh, far from certainty in terms of uh, will Fianna Fáil uh, continue with this deal uh, or would they take the option of pulling the plug? Uh, and either way, uh, what about Michal Martin uh, when he finishes as Taoiseach? What is his fate? 
I think for Micheál Martin, they're, they're down a point in this poll to 16%, but the, the noise on the Fianna Fáil backbenches, uh, at least publicly, has very much been muted in, in recent months. Uh, you talk to backbenchers and they say generally they're much happier with how he's performing, that they, there's a lot of sympathy for him in, in terms of how he his great moment in, in the US on St. Patrick's Day was, was taken away from him by his positive COVID test. Um, but obviously that didn't result in any sympathy vote from the public in, in this poll. But I think they're waiting now to see what happens ahead of the transition in December that Michal Martin more than likely will get to serve out his time as Taoiseach. But the, the great question that you can't get a clear answer from Fianna Fáil backbenchers is what happens then? Does he stay on as leader or does somebody else emerge to say they want to take over and, and become leader instead? Mm, well, would anybody want the job, I suppose, is the next question because uh, that we've been living through hard times, very hard times over the last uh, couple of years, Michael, uh, but it's quite possible that they're going to get uh, an awful lot harder. And uh, as I say, there's so much uncertainty for uh, the government looking into a population boom, uh, the potential of increasing the population by up to 4% of two. 100,000 people were to move to live here. Yeah, it's it's quite an incredible state of affairs. You know, the, the, you know, the, the challenge that's there for the government with coping with the, the Russian war in Ukraine and, and all the refugees that are arriving here day by day. We had maybe six or 700 uh, people from fleeing from Ukraine per day last week, which is, is why Gormanston is now being mentioned as a, a place for temporary emergency tents and on Defence Forces land there. But for for anyone to take over in Fianna Fáil, there's always ambition in politics and, and look in Labour, they're in an extremely tough position at the moment. But Ivana Bacic has still decided to step up and say that she thinks she can rescue their fortune. So there never seems to be a shortage of, of people out there who believe they can they can be the person to do it. Okay, uh, the poll on neutrality was straightforward on one hand. Uh, the majority of people uh, want us to remain uh, a neutral com- country, 57%, but uh, very nuanced on the other hand uh, when you dig down into the other questions that you ask the people. Yeah, it is, Michael. In some way, there's contradictory findings because, as you rightly say, when we asked should Ireland drop its policy of neutrality, 57% disagreed. They want to keep Ireland as a neutral country. But then you have findings like, you know, 46 percent or so of people would support a proposal referendum for Irish troops to serve in the EU army, which is there's very little way you can square that with a with a love for neutrality. And the same again when we asked about should people join NATO, 38 percent in favour. Uh, sorry, 48 percent in favour, 38 percent against. So again, uh, more people than not wanting to join NATO. And again, you cannot really it's any, see how you can join NATO, which is a common defence uh, organisation, without requiring a referendum, because our, our constitution says you can't do that. You know, So mm. it seems to be in a hardening of attitude, I suppose, you could say, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that people want a tougher response, but then they're also very attached to neutrality and, and that long-standing policy. Okay, and and do you think that there is the prospect of a a referendum on neutrality? Was that the logic behind the Sunday Business Post commissioning this poll? I I think the main logic behind that question was to to detect, you know, what is there a shift in public attitudes towards neutrality? And you can see the answers are are quite complex. 
I don't honestly believe um, Michael will see a referendum on neutrality in this government. I think Fianna Fáil in particularly are, are not that enthusiastic about it. They are the party where Eamon de Valera, you know, most famously deployed it by keeping Ireland in neutral in, in World War Two, which was generally popular at the time. And I, I think the priority for referendums is things like, you know, improving the rights of women in the Irish constitution, dealing with the right to housing, maybe even the, the right to keeping water and public ownership. So I think all of those things are ahead of us in the queue. Okay. Thank you indeed, Michael, for joining us this morning. Good to talk to you. That's Michael Brennan, who is uh, the political editor of the Sunday Business Post. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, 34 buses uh, were cancelled uh, by Bus Erin in Mead on Friday. Buses that were to travel to Dublin. Uh, apparently, it's part of an ongoing problem. What that problem is, uh, we don't know. We're hoping uh, that Bus Erin will issue with uh, us with a, a statement uh, this morning. But uh, this is an issue that's been raised by the Ain2 leader and local TD in Mead West, Petter Tobin, who's on the line. A very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. That's uh, an awful lot of cancellations. Do you have any idea as to what's behind it? It's an incredible situation and, and the context of this is that Meads has the highest number of commuters in the country first and foremost. Um, more people left the county today to work than actually remained in the county to work and that happens in no other county in the 32 counties uh, of this country. Um, Ireland, our Meads is, is an outlier in terms of the number of people who are forced to commute and we commute further distances than any other county. Uh, and, as I've, I've said in your show a number of times, we're the only county where most of the county is not actually serviced uh, by a rail line. Navan is the biggest town in the country without a rail line. So we are more dependent than most uh, on our bus services. And, you know, we've had a, you know, a, a, a very dodgy service over the years uh, from Bus Aaron. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I was on your show talking about the fact that a large number of, of services over months uh, were being cancelled and people were being left at bus stops early in the morning trying to get to work or late in the evening trying mm. to get home. And on Fridays, just absolutely outrageous where, you know, services to and from Mead or that go through Mead and at least service villages and towns in Mead were cancelled. Um, and, you know, we brought this to the attention uh, of uh, Bus Erin haven't come back to us with a, an official response as of yet. Since Friday? Since Friday, uh, mm-hmm. and most of the only information we're getting is from a customer service uh, staff member who can only speak uh, unofficially, is not representative mm. really uh, of uh, Bus Aaron, but at least is, is giving us some information. Um, I'm sure they're aware of it. I mean, they, it's hard to think that they need somebody to bring it to their attention. They must be fully aware of the buses that they're cancelling and must know why. It's odd that they haven't. Uh, responded to you and explained it. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible situation uh, where Bus, Bus Aaron still have not told the elected representatives here in, in Navan uh, and in Meath uh, what's actually happening. And some of these services, like, are, are, they're, they're important services for a start. We're talking about buses that were coming from Dublin to Navan, let's say, on Friday evening. Um, the, the, the 744, the 812, mm. the 930, the 1030. So these are people, who, like, you know, men and women who are coming home from work and, you know, not just one bus and then the next bus comes along, but, you know, a, a sequence of buses are not coming along. And, you know, certain bus stops are not being serviced at all. So you could be sitting at, or standing at Wilton Terrace, let's say in Dublin, looking for a bus 
from 8.44 um, right up until uh, nearly 9 o'clock and uh, no bus uh, will have, will have uh, gone at all. Uh, sorry, when I say sorry, 6.44 to 9 o'clock, no. no bus will have come and picked you up from that particular spot there. Um, and if a person you know, stays late in, in, their, in their office at 9.30 to 10.30 or even goes for a pint maybe after work, um, those buses are cancelled. And many of these people won't have alternative uh, ways mm. to get home uh, to the county at all. It's just outrageous. It's wrong. And it shows, I think, a level of disdain you know, for the, the commuters of Meads when so many buses uh, on one given day are just cancelled. There isn't a, an industrial dispute or something, is there? I mean, for 34 buses to be cancelled in a, a day, it seems an awful lot. No, the, 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 there have been um, a ongoing difficulty in industrial relations with bus air and, and drivers in the past, uh, and that was one of the reasons why buses uh, were uh, cancelled to the county. The only explanation I can think of in relation to this is the high level of COVID that's actually in uh, circulation at the moment. Okay. Um, many people will have, uh, you know, no mm. family and friends. The bus, the bus drivers are out sick, in other words. In, 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 yeah, that many of them will, will mm. be. Uh, many of them will be sick. And and absent from absent from work because of COVID. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. O- mm-hmm. Others will be absent to work because maybe they do not have they don't have the symptoms. But they have to restrict their movements, obviously, uh, to make sure that they don't spread it to anybody else. Mm. So, um, but, you know, th- there needs to be contingency plans. Because, okay. it, you know, the bus air, you know, has to operate on the basis that it knows that there's going to be uh, certain times where there's spikes in COVID. Uh, and they have to be able to put in contingency plans to make sure that people can get to and from work. And, and what happens if you go for the bus at 6.44 and it doesn't turn up till 9 o'clock? When do you realise that there isn't going to be a bus? Because you're probably there from 6.30 anyway. Well, all I can advise people at this moment, in this chaotic moment in time, is that they actually get onto the website before even they leave their house or before they leave their, their, their place of work to see whether or not a bus is likely to be in service for them. Um, now, thankfully today, and it, it may be because of some of the, the, the noise we've made on this, um, there, there is, if you, if you go to the Bus Aaron website and you look for disruption in the east and northeast region today, you'll find that thankfully um, things aren't too bad today. Um, so, but I, I would definitely encourage people to go to the Bus Aaron uh, website and in that you'll see bus disruption um, and in the, north, the east and northeast is obviously the area that affects Mead, the likes of Louth uh, and West Mead uh, as well. But, you know, it's a lottery. You know, you can't, you can't be sure at this stage whether or not a bus mm. is going to take you home to yeah, where you need well, to go. Well, you're right, uh, and you're right about COVID, it seems. Uh, we've just received a uh, response from Bus Air, and they say that they're aware of uh, the cancellation of uh, these services in recent days. Uh, they say that it's the result of an increase in COVID-19 related absences. We apologise to our customers for the inconvenience. Bus Aaron have operated over 98% of services on the NX Navin Dublin service last week. For context, they say Bus Aaron provide in excess of 900 weekly trips along the NX corridor. Intending customers should check the bus service website for all disruptions. Uh, so it's pretty much in line with what yeah, you've been saying. Yeah. The, only, the only thing I would say to that is if a bus is, is late on a regular basis um, and a person is, is then late for work on a regular basis, that puts their job in jeopardy because most bosses, you know, are not going to take an excuse, you know, over and over again in relation, relation to people being late. And secondly, if a bus is, is late on a regular basis, after a while confidence wanes and then people 
say, well, listen, I'm not going to bother getting you know, the bus. I can't rely on the bus to get me to work on time. And then people are forced back into cars, which is you know, enormously expensive at the moment. And as well, the traffic is chaotic uh, up and down to Dublin. People can easily, in some parts of Meath, uh, take up to three hours uh, on the return journey on a daily basis. Um, and given the fact that we don't have an alternative, that every other big town and every other county has an alternative uh, of a rail line, uh, bringing people in and out uh, of Dublin as well. So, you know, while I take the fact that, you know, um, bus errand can't control the spread of COVID, it can put in contingency plans and it can mitigate by the provision uh, of extra staff to make sure that when a person's out sick, they have somebody else who can jump into that. Okay, place well, as I say, we've apologies from Bus Erin and uh, they are advising people to check the website before expecting buses to arrive for those reasons that we've uh, been discussing. Uh, before you leave us, uh, you might like to comment on uh, that Sunday Business Post poll yesterday, the Red Sea poll, aimed to on 2%. That's a, a good poll for you, isn't it, uh, in terms of growing the party, especially going into the elections in the north? It's a solid poll, absolutely. We're, we're delighted with the developments uh, that we're achieving and um, we, we're running 10 candidates so far in the 18 constituencies in the north of Ireland. Um, we uh, are focusing on four target constituencies, Fermanagh, South Tyrone, Foyle, East Derry and West Belfast. Uh, I've been uh, canvassing on the doors in those constituencies and I can tell you there's a real frustration in the north of Ireland at the moment in terms of the fact that Stormont has crashed again. In the north, they're, 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 they have the same difficulties in the north as we have in the south. Um, there's 44,000 people on housing waiting lists in the north. There's a quarter of a million people on hospital waiting lists for more than a year in the north. There's 300,000 people in poverty. And then there's the cost of living crisis. Now, that's bad enough. But imagine if you had a, a situation where the government was on strike, basically. That it wasn't mm-hmm. functioning at all through that. And people are furious in relation to what's happening and that these ministers are getting paid a wage, but they're not doing their job. And our message is very clear to the people of the, of the North at the moment. If you keep voting the same way that you've been voting for years, how can you expect a different result in this election? If you want change, you have to change the way you vote. And I've no doubt that um, this will be a good election for AIM2, where members are coming to us from all across the six counties at the moment. And, you know, I look forward to that sunny day when we have uh, AIM2 MLAs going into Stormont, to fight the corner uh, of people mm. in the north who don't have a voice. And there's also the prospect that no MLAs will be going in and that could be the end of power well, sharing because of the, uh, how deep the, the divide is. The one thing I will say mm. is there is a need for reform of the institutions in the north of Ireland. It is intolerable that the DUP can throw their toys out of the pram um, and pull down the whole system. Mm. It would not be tolerated in the south or in any well, other democracy. They'll be campaigning on the back of it but uh, it'll be a long we, campaign. Reforms, we need to take away the, the, the ability of one party to crash the system over and over again. Okay. The elections, of course, will be on the 5th of May. We leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Mead West TD, Padder Tobin, who's uh, the leader and founder of the Ain't Two Party. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Irish Times reported on Friday that Jane Gracia, whose mother Valerie Anderson died in April of 2020 at the Jalgen House nursing home in Dundalk, is taking a wrongful death claim against Jalgen House. 
It's the first legal action against the home arising from the death of a resident from COVID-19, according to that report in the Irish Times. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Murku, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Rory O'Murku, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That, as I say, is how that was reported in the Irish Times on Friday, and undoubtedly it will be up to the courts to decide on that case. Uh, But what is uh, the background to this? Because there were quite a number of people who died from COVID-19 in Dalgan House, as many of our listeners will be aware, uh, and under very questionable circumstances. Yeah, look, that's it. And in fairness, due to yourself and others in the media, people will also be aware um, of the huge work that has been done by the families um, that a huge amount of whether it's the FOIs, I suppose, uh, you know, some sort of help from TDs with parliamentary questions that they've had multiple meetings with the RCSI hospital group, with the HSE and its various component parts and um, with the Minister for Health. Um, and they have been promised that there would be a mechanism to provide answers. Um, now, the, the, I imagine you'll be fine getting a lot more cases in the next while if the government doesn't make a decision in relation to some sort of mechanism. Now, I obviously what I have asked for is a, a public inquiry. The Taoiseach, uh, in answer to myself and others, Um, has spoken about the fact that he doesn't believe that a commission of inquiry is the way to go, that it would take too long, it wouldn't necessarily, you know what I mean, that it's it's not the proper mechanism. But he's told us what he's not on for. I think we need to hear what he is on for because there's a huge amount of families here who are, you know, dealing with obviously the pain, the not knowing, um, and just need clarity. And, And we as a state need to make sure that all the learnings are made uh, and that we we move on and we can mm. address some some of the issues. We all know there have been multiple reports into the fact that there have been major failings across many years into the way that we deal with elder care provision. So yeah. all that needs to be improved. Well, you, know? you do have to ask yourself, why has it come to this? And uh, we're not going to try and answer uh, the question that the courts will deal with. We leave that to the courts. But the families are looking for answers and the families have made that known and they've been making it known for a very long period of time and they've a lot of pertinent questions uh, that the government is very aware of and as you say the government had promised that there would be a process put in place the Taoiseach said that he would not be commissioning a commission of investigation into this but at the same time he, he gave the impression that there may be another way of dealing with it yeah, no, no, no. He, 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 he certainly did, but we'd need some sort of information in relation to it. Like, there's obviously the uh, PNA Duffy who are dealing with this particular case also have a wider case in the sense that there needs to be um, an inquiry into what has happened, you know, as regards COVID and nursing homes. And, and that's true, the courts at, at this point in time. But an awful lot of this wouldn't be necessary. Like an awful lot of cases that relate to the health system and the health service wouldn't be necessary if government and the HSE made a decision that, you know, we know there's a huge amount of information out there, but that we would have some sort of facility where there would be due diligence, there would be, you know, an investigative power and that we could get the answers that are absolutely necessary. And look, people are are, are fed up. In, in mm-hmm. fairness, you're dealing with people who were dealing with their own personal pain and had to go to the effort of almost, 
I don't want to over-dramatise it, but the reality is it's 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 fighting the state and it's... No, it's you know, very complicated stuff apart from it. And, you know, you're entering into systems that you're not familiar with and it becomes a full-time job because it gets so complicated. But, uh, I mean, it, 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 the Taoiseach's argument against this is not that he doesn't want the families to get answers. It's that he doesn't want them to have to wait six years before a commission concludes and may not even have the answers. Well, well, see, in that case, then we have to find the, find the process. And there are a number of processes that have been carried out, but I don't want to be prescriptive. We just need something that has the facility, as I say, that there's compatibility. There's already a huge amount of disinformation that's, that's out in the public domain due to the families. But we need, but there are disputed narratives, for the want of a better term, between, um, between Jalgen House Management uh, between the HSC, as I say in its vital parts, the RCSI hospital group, and so this all needs to be brought to some sort of conclusion, mm. and it's only an inquiry of sorts that can deliver that. Look, the Taoiseach has also said that he doesn't want any sort of wider inquiry where there would be questioning of Tony Holland or Paul Reid, but on some level, you are going to have to, um, anything that's going to be any sort of real inquiry is going to have to ask questions of people who are in decision-making um, positions. Like, that's just reality. I don't think it necessarily has to be absolutely antagonistic. I think we all accept they were incredibly difficult times. Now, I think there are very specific questions in relation to uh, Jalgen House. Like, we're talking about... Um, we're talking about at least 22 people that died um, during that particular period. Um, and I, it's the at that stage, the only hospital that was taken over by, you know, a hospital yeah, group. Well, college so, of surgeons, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, like, we, we, we need specific questions on that. Mm. And like I say, we do need the wider questioning and, and finding out what went wrong across the entire health service. Because we all know that that the questions were out there in the beginning in the sense that an attempt was made around hospitals basically to clear them of uh, patients, mm. acceptable enough, but there may have been not exactly perfect processes in relation to how people were put in nursing homes. And, and you know, and again, there's other factors that are specific to the likes of Chalgan House that need to be dealt with. Mm. And, and it's just as simple as this, because what is happening at the minute is unfair. And unfortunately, with that level of frustration among families, people are going to go for the legal route because they will see that there's no other route open to them. So it's back to the okay. Taoiseach, it's back to the government, it's literally provide the mechanism. And Stephen Donnelly and Mary Butler have stated this themselves, that these uh, that these families deserve a mechanism. That it's an absolute necessity for the state to put that in play. So I think, and in fairness to the families, they also from time to time, due to difficult circumstances that were going on as regards COVID in the state, you know what I mean, didn't mm. necessarily overpressurize. You know, um, but the, you, the believe, you, you, you believe there's more legal cases against the state pending. You can see within that pace that, you know, what is it, the state claims uh, agency has been notified of 41 claims in relation to COVID-19. There's a huge amount of families. Um, I'm sure many have spoken to solicitors. They may or may not want to go down that legal route. I imagine most of them don't want to go down that legal route. But if they find no other way, there are some that will 
that will follow Jane. Uh, and in fairness, like she, she's looking for the truth in relation to her mother. And, you know, most people in that situation would look for answers and would yep. would try and use every tool that was open to them. So the okay. government need to provide people with a proper mechanism. And again, that can remove some of the pain. It can remove some of the antagonism. Again, this is more of it where people feel, I'm not getting justice from the state, so I have no choice. I have to take it on. You know what I mean? I have from to a leave legal it. point okay. of view. All right, I'm over time. I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed. Rory Murku, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Mead. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 2 new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.